Good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you today. Uh, my name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if we've never met, uh, look forward to that. We had a Next Step dessert last night for our newcomers. Had like over 30 people there. It's just fun to see the people, the different ways God's bringing people here. And so if you're, you're new, it's a special welcome. Uh, before we go into our time of teaching, I've got a couple important uh, announcements. Uh, this uh, Friday, we sent out a ministry update from me. You should have all received that. If you didn't, you might, you might check your junk mail, or maybe you're not on our mailing list yet. But uh, kind of want to share one of our, our big dreams for a long time here is to, to create a major, uh, major ministry for our single adults, especially those over the age of 35. You know, we, we started a ministry a few years ago called 2535 for people that are 25, 35, but, uh, but we wanted to create something that was, was really for, designed for, for anyone who's single, 35 and up, or even below, if you want to be a part of that. And, uh, but we've just been waiting for the right person. Uh, and just, you know, last summer, we almost uh, brought someone on our staff to do that, but at the end, just felt like it wasn't quite, quite the right fit. Um, but as I shared in this letter, that we're very excited that Joel and Christy Inyart are coming back to Rocky Peak. Um, yeah, for some of you, you weren't here there, that they, they were part of our church. They left nine years ago. So Joel and Christy uh, and Lynn and I go way back to our North Coast days. We were at North Coast together. And uh, after we'd been here a couple years, Joel, Joel added, came to our, um, they, Joel and Christy came to Rocky Peak. And so Joel headed up our college ministry for a few years and then uh, transitioned and became our lead life group pastor. And then they really felt God calling them away to be a lead pastor up in Canada, which you know that's a genuine call of God, right? Like, like no one would choose that. And um, it's, uh, they were telling me that during the winter up there, that the thing is with your kids, they can go out on the playground and play unless it's below 25 below zero. Like up to 25 below, you're fine to go out and play. It's like, you know, we, we go inside if it's below 60 here, you know. But uh, anyway, so... Uh, they, they, uh, they were there, then they went to uh, Northern California for a while, but uh, we, Joel and I started talking back in March, had no idea that it was going to lead to this, but we're really excited. So they're going to be joining us. Um, and so uh, one of Joel's, Joel's uh, roles when he was here before, he was one of our weekend, part of our weekend teaching team. And so he'll be joining us as well. So we'll have kind of a three-person team, myself and Dre and Joel. And we're very excited. And that kind of leads to the second announcement is that next week uh, we're wrapping up this first section in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so the first four chapters are kind of a unique unit. They all focus on this division issue in the church. Uh, and so we're going to take a break for three weeks and do uh, a special series for three weeks. It's called Whole Heart. You have this, uh, you have this little thing in your, your program. And, uh, and so uh, what's really fun is that Dre will kick off that series and then Joel will finish that series. So Joel will actually be here teaching that weekend of August 13th and 14th. So we're very excited about welcoming them back to kick this major ministry. Christy will also be joining our team. She will be one of our life group directors, uh, kind of focusing on all our singles life groups. We expect this to grow large. We have lots of singles groups, a lot of life groups, and so she'll be overseeing those and also then helping coordinate this new ministry as it grows. So uh, be praying for them. Uh, they're looking for a house right now or looking for a home to rent here as they move in the area. All the transitions as they'll, they'll finish up their current ministry responsibilities in of July and they'll be coming down here in August. So we're very excited to welcome them back and, uh, and then be kicking off that, that new series 
uh, in a couple weeks as well. So I uh, wanted to be, um, kind of make sure you're aware of that. We're going to go into our time of teaching, though, though, as Johnny said. And so if you haven't done so, inside your program is a, a green and white message note sheet. We use it every week. And I know if you're a regular, you, you know that. But if you're brand new, you may not. You'll definitely need it. So you're going to pull it out. And if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. So God, we're just excited to be here and to be looking at your word. Lord, and, and like your word gives life. And, and we know that. Lord, you, you said to your disciples that one day that the words that I speak to you, they're, 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 uh, they're life. And Lord, we, we've experienced that here in our own lives personally. We've experienced it week by week as we kind of unpack your word together. And so we pray today you would do what only you can do which is uh, open our eyes to see the reality of these words that we're studying and what it means for our life, especially at this critical juncture in our culture as we follow you in the way of your cross. We pray this in your name, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, our story starts today um, uh, early in the morning. uh, Outside the complex, Uh, the sun is coming up, but they're, they're not outside, they're inside. They're inside a a kind of very dark and dank uh, prison cell. That's where they've spent the night, and they're not sure what today is going to bring. And this uh, this all started yesterday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. As they they approached the massive complex, and as they went in, they they saw a disabled man there asking for donations. And uh, they didn't really have any money to give him, but they, they wanted to give him what they had. And as a result... There was a major scene, a crowd gathered, and the police came, and they were arrested. And so they, they've spent the night in this cell, and very shortly, they're going to be brought out into a, a very large interrogation room, um, where they're going to be interrogated about what they've done and why. And uh, they're not sure exactly where this is going to lead and how this day is going to end. But one thing they do know is that it's a very dangerous situation. The charges against them are serious. And so they're just not sure how this day is going to unfold. And about this point, they can hear the guard coming down the hall, the keys rattling as he's getting ready to release them and take them in for interrogation. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in for the last two or three months now. It's called Christ, Culture, and the Cross. And for those of you who are brand new, and every week, you know, we we have new people, um, this is an in-depth study of one of the most important letters, I think especially for our time, um, in the New Testament. It's, It's a letter that's written from one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a group of Christ followers that he actually led to Jesus about three years before in a strategic, uh, large Roman city in the southern part of Greece. And the name of the town was, was Corinth. And so we called this the letter of 1 Corinthians. So if you've been with us in the series that we're making our way through this long letter, we're in, we're in chapter four, we're going to continue that today. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. There in your note sheet is a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross, the leader, the leaders to follow. You'll notice we're going to follow, we're going to pick it up verse 9, go through verse 17. And as you're turning there, let me set it up. So what we've seen in this series is that when when Paul came to Corinth with his team, it was a three-man team, it was himself uh, eventually joined by Silas and Timothy, 
And they shared the message of Jesus. They were there for like a year and a half. And as they shared the message of Jesus, that many people came to Christ in spite of this controversial, very offensive message about a crucified Messiah, that God moved in a supernatural way. And people came to Jesus and they gave their lives to him and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on top of that, in this particular church, uh, the, the Holy Spirit poured out a wide array, a very uh, impressive supernatural spiritual gifts. So and we'll talk more about those when we get to chapter 12 and 14. But as a result, these believers from the very beginning tended to see themselves as very wise, very mature, very spiritual because of these powerful experiences. But as we learned in the beginning of chapter 3, that the reality is, is they were actually very immature, very non-spiritual, not being led by the Spirit um, they, they were like spiritual babies. And one of the ways it was just so obvious was because they, they were splitting into these different factions and groups following different, uh, their favorite spiritual leaders as if like before they became uh, Christians, they would follow different philosophers. And so, uh, so Paul last week really addressed this and put his finger on the heart of the issue, which was their pride. Like the reason they were dividing, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of uh, uh, Peter, was because they wanted to show that they were the most sophisticated, they were the wisest, they were the smartest. And so what we learned last week is, is Paul said, hey, when you look at the cross of Jesus, it's not something we just look back to uh, and that we remember what he did for us there and salvation for our sins, but the, the, the cross exemplifies the core values of God's heart. And one of those values is humility, the humility that Jesus uh, demonstrated on the cross when he gave his life for others. He, he was others-focused. And, and so we, we learned last week that the way of the cross is the way of humility. But today, we're going to learn that the way of the cross is more than, than just humility. And so it's in that setting that he's, he's going to challenge him. He's going to say, you need to stop looking at these new leaders rising up in Corinth that are kind of all about their pride and their their kind of uh, their their success in culture and being respected in culture. He said, if you really want to understand the way of Jesus, you know, need to look at the kind of model your lives after the true leaders of the movement of Jesus, which is the apostles of Jesus. And so verse verse nine, he says, for it seems to me that God has put us. What's the next word? Apostles. So underline that. This this is the point today that that if you want to look how to, how to follow Jesus, um, that we need to look to the leaders of his movement. And that would be like the apostles that Jesus kind of gave to his church to lead it. And of course, Paul is one of those apostles. So he says, it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. Now the question is, what is he talking about? Uh, Paul is using a powerful metaphor that would have been obvious to anyone in the first century, but not so obvious to us. And, and so we need to like, step back a little bit of backstory. So in the Roman Empire, when a famous general would go out and have a very successful major military campaign, it had to be super big. Maybe you pacify a whole new area, like you, you, like you cover France and you bring it into the kingdom or something like that, or you, you, uh, you cover you know, England brought in, that when, when something big happened like that, you conquered a new area, what they would call to pacify it. Uh, that the Roman Senate would often uh, vote in honor to the conquering general that was called the triumph, all right? That word triumph. And so, so what a triumph was, it was like a, it was a public uh, parade through the city of, 
um, of Rome, much like we would have like a ticker tape uh, parade, like after a sports team wins in, in New York, except this would go on for days. And it was very elaborate. So the way this would work was that the conquering general would actually lead this, usually being drawn in a chariot drawn by horses through the, the street. The, city, the streets are like lined with people, incense is being burned, you know, to, to celebrate this victory. And so at the, at the head of this parade is the conquering general. He would often have his face painted red to represent Jupiter, the, the, the leading god of, of Rome. And so it was like he was kind of like God for a day, like God for a day. And so then behind him would come all these elaborate floats. Think of the Rose Parade, but like elaborate floats that actually had huge like battle scenes depicted or the name of provinces that had been conquered. So in a day where there was no media, this was a way of like communicating. Here's kind of the victories. Here's the battles. Here's what it took to accomplish this. And then behind that, uh, there would be all these uh, kind of the, the, the treasures of war that have been captured. Maybe, maybe um, you know, artwork and statues and gold and silver and all this elaborate things. And then behind that would come the soldiers and the soldiers would be marching and singing their songs of battle, you know, kind of often they're kind of lewd body soldier songs. And, and the crowds cheering and then at the very end of this procession would come some of the leading prisoners who've been captured in this war, who've been humiliated. So you've got these kings or high officials or aristocrats that, that have now been subjected and they're actually in chains and, and they're being led through the city for everyone to look and to mock these people. And then when they would finally arrive at the destination at the arena where the, the stands are gonna be full of, of all the spectators, the, these, these, these people at the end are gonna be put to death. Maybe it's going to be thrown to the gladiators. Maybe it's to, to, uh, to, the, you know, to the, the lions or tigers or bears or whatever. But they're going to be put to death there or sometimes sold into slavery. And so Paul is using this picture. And he says, you know, I know they're in Corinth, but you're really taken in by these new leaders who are kind of acting like they're, they're kind of, they're combining the wisdom of their culture and the wisdom of the cross, trying to comp put them together in such a way that this is sort of like uh, being a Christian, it's a fast track to success, all this new spiritual power and supernatural things. He says, but, but, but that's not the way that it works. It's if you want to understand what it's to be truly a follower of Jesus, look at the apostles. They're like the guys at the end of this, of this parade that are being mocked and jeered and hated in culture. Like, they're the ones who are truly following the way of the cross. And, of course, Paul would be one of those. And so, so that's the analogy. So he says already uh, in verse uh, 9, for it seems to me um, that God has put us apostles, right? They're the models, on display at the end of the procession. Uh, not the people that are respected in culture, not the people that uh, are, are rich or powerful, like, but we actually look like we're the losers. Like this is how culture looks at us. So for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. And we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe. Like think of the whole universe like being in, in the stands watching the apostles uh, to angels as well as to human beings. He said, he said, we are fools for Christ. That's how we're seen. He says, but you there in Corinth, like you're so wise in Christ. You know, we, we're weak. We're seen as, you know, like the people at the end of the procession conquered. 
He said, but, but you're strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored to this very hour. So this is not old news. He said, this is current situation. As apostles, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. You know, we're not like independently wealthy. And he says, and when we're cursed, and notice that, we, they, that this is how they were often treated. They're often cursed. When we're cursed, we bless, you know, like Jesus taught us. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the what? The scum of the earth. So here's the Corinthians, like trying to take the message of Jesus, combine it with the message of their culture, and kind of see as a fast track to success. And he says, hey, the, the people that are really living out the gospel, remember, remember what we saw in chapter one, it's so hard for us to remember this, but the message of the cross was foolishness, offensive. And he said, for those who are really living it out, we become the scum of the earth. In the Greek, it's like, uh, like what you'd scrape off the bottom of your, your sandals. Uh, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. He says, so, so I'm writing this not to shame you. It's interesting because later in a couple chapters, he said, I'm writing this to shame you, <laughs> but, but not yet. You know, <laughs> don't want to jump the gun on that shame thing. So I'm not writing this to shame you. He said, but I, I'm writing to warn you as my dear children. And so Paul had led these believers to Christ, so he sees them as their spiritual sons and daughters. Now, in Roman culture, you would often have, like uh, in a Roman household, you, you would often have uh, one of your top slaves, highly educated slave, who would be in charge of raising your sons, and they would be like a guardian over your sons, and so their job was to make sure they, they were learning their lessons, kind of teach them kind of the, you know, how to operate in their culture and so on, and so these, these guardians played an important role, but they were nothing compared to the father who in a Roman household you know, was just uh, extremely honored. And so he, he refers to these uh, new leaders rising up as kind of like guardians. And he says, uh, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I become your father through the gospel. And he said, therefore, I urge you, you know, like little children will, in, a, in a healthy home will, will uh, imitate their parents. Uh, he says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me, you know, as, as your apostle, and he said, and for this reason, I'm sending you Timothy. Uh, so Timothy, remember, was one of the three members of the original team that shared the message of Jesus uh, in Corinth. So they know Timothy. And Timothy was a younger man that Paul had also led to Christ, but he was like a great example of a mature believer and what a, what a true son in the faith would look like. So he said that, you know, I can't come right now. I'll be coming in a few months. We'll get to that next week. But uh, so right now I'm sending Timothy, like a true son in the faith, to help you kind of remember what it looks like to follow Jesus. So he said, for this reason, I've sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. And he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, like how to follow Jesus. <coughs> and he says, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. And so one of the things we'll see in this letter is that several times, Paul will remind them that they're, they're part of something bigger, that they're part of this movement of Jesus, and that what Paul's teaching them and their churches, what the apostles are teaching in all the churches, and, and so that they, they just can't do their own thing. Like, they, they have to come under the teaching of Jesus like everyone else. They're not, like, unique, you know? 
And so that with that, he wraps up this, uh, this section. And next week, we'll come back. We'll, we'll finish up this chapter. It makes a very powerful statement. We'll talk about it next week where, where he says the kingdom of God doesn't consist in just words. It's power. And so we'll be talking about that more next week. But for today, I want to stop it here because I want to focus on this kind of way of the cross. Like we, we learned last week that the way of the cross is this way of humility, kind of having an accurate view of ourselves and then living a life for others, uh, not being self-absorbed. Jesus modeled that uh, most clearly on the cross. But today I want to come and talk about kind of part two of the way of the cross and, and talk specifically about the role that persecution plays in our life as followers of Jesus as we follow, uh, follow our model and walk the way of the cross. So, so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called uh, Christ, Culture, and the Cross, the Way of the Cross, part two. And what I want to do is highlight two principles that flow out of this passage today, out of this model of the apostles' lives, um, and, and then come back at the end and ask one question for us. Just kind of help us, help us think through our own lives. So here we go. So the first thing that jumps out at me today is that the way of the cross is the path of persecution. Like if we're going to follow Jesus, that, that persecution is part of the package of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So... Uh, that if we're going to walk the way of the cross, it, that, that that means that we're going to, at times in our life, walk the path of persecution. So let's talk about this. This is something that Jesus taught all the time. He taught at the beginning of his ministry. He taught at the end of his ministry and several key points along the way. But I want to give you a couple examples. So let's talk about the beginning of his ministry. Early in his ministry, uh, Jesus gave one of the most famous messages in the history of the world. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5 through 7. And very early in that passage, he talks about the role the persecution will play in the life of his followers. And so he says there in your note sheet, he says, blessed, and remember in Jewish kind of parlance, uh, to be blessed is to, to live under the blessing of God. This is kind of the good life, what you want to do. You want to live under the blessing of God. So he says, blessed are those who are what? Persecuted. So underline that. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So let me ask you something. When you're persecuted, how blessed do you feel? Yeah, it's like anyone want to sign up for this? Yeah, me, me either, right? Uh, and yet Jesus, I want you to catch this very early on. He says that, hey, as my followers, you're going to be persecuted. And he said you're going to be persecuted because of what? What's he say? Righteousness. Now I want you to underline that. One of the questions that comes up today, we talk about this topic of persecution. Hey, is if someone's living life the right way, which is what righteousness means, why would anyone be persecuted for that? Like, why wouldn't that be applauded, right? But one of the things that Jesus said in John chapter 3, and this is not on your note sheet, but in John chapter 3, he said, this is the judgment that's against this fallen world. He said that, that light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. In other words, when the light shows up, it, it reveals the evil, and because of that, those in the dark want to put out the light. And that's what they did to Jesus, right? They put out the light. They said, wait, we don't like that light, we're gonna hang that light, and we're gonna, we're gonna shut down that light. And so Jesus said, if you're gonna follow me, that this is what happens, is that you're going to be hated because you're doing the right thing. 
And notice what he says, he goes on and he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like, like who will be part of his kingdom? He says, those that are, are, have been transformed by me, they're living life the right way, and they're, they're gonna be persecuted. So that's what he says at the beginning. Let's fast forward three years to the end of his ministry. Last night, he's with his men before uh, he's arrested. Later that night, he's trying to prepare them for what's coming in their future after he leaves. And this is what he says in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first, right? But notice you're in good company. He said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. So the Bible teaches, like in Colossians 1, when we come to Jesus, something happens to us, something supernatural, and we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And, and so something changes at the core, and so now we're no longer, we, we, we have a different DNA. And so Jesus says that, hey, as my followers, I've chosen you out, you're in the world, but you're not really of the world anymore. Something has happened, you've been born again, something new has happened, and he said, because of that, that's why the world hates you, because of this difference. And he says, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. So if they persecuted me, boom, guess what? They're gonna persecute you. And so at the beginning, at the end, and of course throughout his ministry, remember what Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let them take up their cross and follow me, right? So, so this is what you see. As we open the New Testament, we see the words of Jesus, his prophecy predicted. Because as soon as the early church is launched, uh, it begins to experience persecution. And uh, this takes us back to the story that we started the day with about these two men who've gone to this large complex. They see the disabled guy there. They end up getting thrown in prison, right? So this is a story that we're told, a uh, true story from Acts chapter three and four. So right after the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter two, the church is born, that soon after that, Peter and John, two of the apostles, right? So we're, that's what this lesson's about today, that how the apostles are our model. Two of the apostles, that they are, uh, they're, they're walking up to the huge temple complex. And there's this guy there who's disabled. He's been lame, we don't know for how long. And, and so um, he asked for money, you know, like, like people would ask today at an intersection or an off-ramp or the, you know, the, the start of, you know, entrance to Target, parking lot or whatever. And, uh, and so he's asking for donations. And so they said, well, we don't have any money, but what we have you, they just, my guess is they pass this guy all the time because they go to the temple every day to trade. But, um, but, but on this particular day, that the Holy Spirit's just moving. They said, in the name of Jesus, we'll give you what you have. Stand up and walk. And so this guy is healed instantly. And of course, he's ecstatic. He's jumping around, praising God. And this draws a big crowd. And so they began to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. It's just been a couple months you know, since then. They begin to preach Jesus. And the religious leaders hear about this and they are really upset because they thought they killed Jesus. This is the end of this problem. And so they rush in with the temple police. They arrest Peter and John, throw him in prison. And the next day, then they bring him for this interrogation before the Jewish high court called the Sanhedrin. And after they, after they question him, like, how did you do this and so on, they just threaten him. They say, hey, hey, whatever happened, happened, but just, you better knock this off or bad things will happen to you. Well, remember, these are the same guys who were behind killing Jesus two months ago. It's a very dangerous situation. 
But the apostles go out, they just keep on teaching. So we come to chapter five, and in chapter five, they're teaching, they're arrested again. This time they're brought before the high court. This time they're not just warned, they're, they're beaten. They're, they're like, they're whipped. Very painful experience. Uh, and, and then, they, but they go out and they keep on teaching. And so by the time we get to chapter seven, we meet a leader in the early church named Stephen. And Stephen is arrested, and he's, end up, he's, being, he's stoned for, for teaching about Jesus. And, and that we were introduced at the end of chapter 7 to a, uh, a man named Saul of Tarsus, who will become the apostle Paul later. But he is going to become a great leader of this persecution against the entire church in Jerusalem, so severe that at the beginning of chapter 8, Christians have to flee for their lives. They've got to leave their homes. They've got to leave their stuff. They've got to leave their jobs. They're running for their lives. And this becomes the pattern of the book of Acts. As the apostle Paul then comes to Jesus, uh, and, and he begins in chapter 13, uh, begins going through the Roman Empire, sharing the message of Jesus. Wherever the message of Jesus goes, persecution happens. But what's interesting, it doesn't matter whether it's Philippi or Thessalonica, whatever, but, but here's the interesting thing, is that when you read the New Testament and you read the, the letters that Paul writes back to these churches he started, that almost without exception, that they address this issue of persecution. The Christians are suffering. So if you read Philippians, you read Thessalonians, right, they're, they're suffering. But guess what? When you get to two of the longest letters in our New Testament, Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, there's not a peep about persecution. And guess why? Because they're not following the way of the cross. They've taken the message of Jesus, the parts they like, they're mixing it with the wisdom of their culture and they're saying that this, is, this new spiritual power in their life and this new experience, this is a way to kind of rise in society. Do you remember what Paul said? Hey, we're fools for Christ, but you're so wise. We're dishonored, but you're so honored. And so Paul is challenging them. Hey, the way of Christ is the path of persecution. If you want to see what it looks like to follow Jesus, look at the apostles. Look at my life. And he's warning them. He's warning them, you are in deep spiritual danger. And as we move through this letter, those warnings are going to get more severe. That if you think you can follow Jesus and keep living like you did before, if you think you can follow Jesus and keep going to your idolatrous feast, you think you can follow Jesus and keep living your life of immorality, you're deceiving yourself. And so as a father who loves him deeply, he's given a severe warning that the way of the cross is a path of persecution. It's part of the package. So we'll come back to that later. Now, number two. The second principle is that the path of persecution, surprisingly, that's the ellipsis there, but leads to power and presence. Now, this is surprising because if you're like me, I'm not big on persecution. The Apostle Paul was, and that just shows you how much distance there is between me and the Apostle Paul. But what we're going to see today is that Paul is going to say, hey, listen, that persecution, that's during times of persecution, 
that we experience the power of Jesus' resurrection and we experience the power of his presence in our lives like, un, like, any, like unlike any other time. So what we're gonna see as we go through this letter is that this is one of the primary reasons why the Corinthians were struggling with the Apostle Paul. In their view, anyone who claimed to be an apostle of the resurrected King Jesus should be operating in power. They should be successful. They should be respected. They should be wealthy. And Paul was exactly the opposite. He was working with his own hands. Um, He was not a gifted speaker like they they respected. He, He wasn't teaching with Greek wisdom that they, that they respected. Um, and on top of that, wherever Paul went, trouble happened. He was always in trouble with the authorities. Like, like he, he was always being slandered. He was always being arrested. He was always being beaten. Like, he, he, it wasn't like a picture of success. And for them, it's like the apostle Paul didn't fit their image of what a powerful spiritual leader should be. And so Paul has to educate them. And he says, listen, the leaders of Jesus are like Jesus on the cross. Like, like, do you realize who you follow? Do you realize what happened to him? The true leaders are like him. Like the apostles, they're they're looking like Jesus. Look at what their lives are like. And so he said, here's a lesson that, Paul, that Jesus had to teach Paul because he didn't understand this at first either. And when we, when we get to 2 Corinthians, this is becoming a huge issue between Paul and the church. That he, that, is he really even an apostle? Is he really even sent by Jesus? Because he doesn't look like what they thought an apostle should look like. And when he gets to chapter 12, he begins to say, listen, I had to learn this too. And when you get to chapter 12, there's a very famous verse. And it's there on your note sheet in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, Jesus came to him in a vision. And if you remember, he had this uh, thorn in his flesh. We don't really know what it was. He called it a messenger of Satan. But he kept asking Jesus to remove this because it was so painful. And Jesus spoke to him in this vision, which was unusual for Paul too. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, my power, my supernatural power is most revealed not when you're powerful, but when you're actually weak. Because when you're weak, it's like it's so obvious that the power is coming from me. So I, let, me, let me give you an example. You know, when Paul went to Philippi, he was, he was arrested there uh, for different reasons. And he was beaten severely by the Roman authorities. So they, they would beat you with like big like rods instead of like the, the Jews would whip you. But the, the Romans would beat you with these big rods. And so he was severely beaten with his partner Silas and they're thrown into jail. And if you remember the story in Acts 16, that that night after being severely beaten and almost torn apart by a mob, they're singing and hymns and worshiping God at midnight. Do you remember that, that account? And that's when the earthquake came and then they were supernaturally released and they lead the jailer to Christ. You remember that? When you read that story, you're like, that's crazy. This guy's been beaten to death and it's midnight and they're worshiping God and all the prisoners are like, that's crazy. Like, how do you do that? How do you get beaten 
and then you're worshiping. How do you do that? And you know what Paul would say? It's not me, it's Jesus. Like you look at Paul, he's always getting beat up. He's always getting stoned. He's always getting uh, kicked out of town. Like how do you keep on going? It's like, it's not me, it's Jesus. The power is revealed in times of persecution. And that's exactly what Paul says next. Paul says, once I had this paradigm shift and I learned that, it gave me a whole different perspective on persecution. Now look at the very next verse on your note sheet. 2 Corinthians 12, 10. The very next verse, he says, that is why, because power is released in my weakness. That's why for Christ's sake, for the sake of his kingdom, the advance of his kingdom, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. Let me ask you, how many of you delight in insults? Like, I don't. I don't come home and listen, how was your day? It was amazing. Really, what happened? I was just insulted up one side and down the other. I need to go home and I need to go upstairs and journal quickly before I forget. It was a powerful day, right? That's not not my, but do do you catch this? Paul says, I delight. Why? Because the number one priority in Paul's life is that Jesus would be revealed through him. And he said, when I'm going through these hard times and persecution, that's when Jesus shows up the most and everyone can see his power in my life. That's when the power switch gets turned on. And so he says, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions and in difficulties because when I'm weak, I've learned this, that I'm strong. And and catch this, as you go on and you study this theme in Paul's life, it's not just he experiences the power of God, it's he experiences the presence of Jesus. I don't know about you, but one of the top passions of my life is I want to know Jesus. I want to know him better. I want to know how he thinks. I want to know his mind. I want to experience his presence, right? And so, so Paul says this was kind of his thing too, right? And so in Philippians 3, he's kind of saying, Here, here's my perspective. Remember, he's writing these Philippians. They're suffering. He's suffering. He's in prison when he writes it. So here's his perspective on persecution. He says, I want to know Christ. And I say, amen. I'm with you. And he says, yeah, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I'm like, I am with you. I want to experience the supernatural power of God working in me and through me. I'm with you. And if he stopped his sentence right there, I'd be very happy. But he does it. He keeps on going. And he says, and I want to know the, and I want the participation in his sufferings. The Greek word there is the word koinonia. It's the word for like deep sharing or fellowship. He says, I, I want to know, I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I'm with him. And, he says, and I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. The guy's in prison. I'm like, yeah, I don't really want to know that. I just want to know Jesus, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. I don't really want to have to go through suffering. And Paul says, no, you don't get it. There's There's a knowing of Jesus, and there's an experience of his power that only you get through suffering. You know, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I'm sure in a room like this, some, some, of, uh, some of you here are cancer survivors. And if you talk to a cancer survivor, one of the things I'll usually tell you is that there's a unique bond that happens when they meet another cancer survivor. Because no one knows what it's like to, to 
be, meet with the doctor for that first time, the tests have come back, and say, you've got cancer. The fear that goes through your mind, the questions about your future, your life kind of flashing before your eyes, it's a very powerful experience. And when you meet someone else who's shared that, there's a fellowship of suffering. Are you with me? There's like, I understand you in a way that most others don't understand you. And can I tell you something? What Paul is saying, there's a fellowship of the cross that when we suffer for Jesus, we are sharing his suffering, what he went through for us, and there's a fellowship that we understand him. And there's a connection that comes in no other way. And so Paul says, hey, I'm willing, I'm willing to go through suffering if that's what it takes for me to really know Jesus and to share this fellowship of his presence and for him to be revealed in and through my life. It's pretty powerful. And this is what we see then in the New Testament. Uh, you know, earlier today we talked about the apostles, uh, Peter and John, called in the first time, don't talk about Jesus, bad things that happen. Then they keep on talking about Jesus. They get arrested again in chapter five. They're brought in. But this time when they're brought in, they're not just warned, they're whipped. But their response is just so in line with what we've been talking about. Look there in your note sheet, chapter five. It says, the apostles, Todd's talking about James and John, they left the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish high court, and they, they left, what's the next word? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Like what? You just got beat. You just got whipped, viciously whipped. Your, your back is raw. Your buttocks are raw. You know, 39 lashes most likely. And you're rejoicing? Yeah. This is, the, this is the testimony, right? That they're rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for Jesus. And so day after day and in the temple courts and, you're, uh, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I didn't stop them. The power of Jesus being revealed in their life in the midst of this, this joy, you know, I think of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. I'm so thankful when I came to you and shared the gospel that you received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of your suffering. God meeting them, Jesus meeting them in the midst of it. And you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because one of the perplexities of history for uh, historians is when you, when you look at this little movement of Jesus, this kind of backwater peasants, you know, this crazy claim, you know, crucified, risen from the dead, you know, right? It, and like, in less than 300 years, that goes from being this crazy claim of few, few people, you know, small amount of people, to, to taking over the Roman Empire and becoming the official religion of Rome. And so historians will ask the question, like, how did that happen? How is that even possible? And, you know, in those analyses, one of the things that always comes up is the courage and joy and suffering of the early believers. Their willingness to suffer for Jesus with joy, even give their lives for him if required. It's like the world's watching and saying like, what is it that you know that we don't know? What is it that you've discovered that is worth so much that you would do what none of us would do for anything, but it's of such value to you? And in their suffering, Jesus was revealed and people came to Christ. 
And one person led to another, and soon it was a movement moving throughout all of Roman culture to the place where it became the official religion of the empire that crucified the originator of the religion. You know, it's true in modern times, too. Uh, you know, in, in 1949, when China was taken over by the communists, there was the, according to the best estimates, there was 4 million followers of Jesus in China in 1949. And, of course, when Mao Zedong took over and the communists came, they began to repress Christianity, persecute, drove the church underground. It was illegal. And many people predicted it would be the end of Christianity in China. But when China began to open up in the early 2000s, the world was blown away because the movement of Jesus had exploded. And it had gone from 4 million people to a very conservative estimate, many estimate, many more than this, of 38 million believers. And the church of Jesus was thriving. And you know in China, that when you're a pastor in China, they don't even consider you a real pastor until you've been in prison. Because it's in prison, they do their seminary training. <laughs> and so in China, it's like, yeah, you're, you're a pastor. You're not a real pastor until you've been, been at least to prison one time. Right? Wow, what a different paradigm. Like, what a different paradigm. Okay, so I've got a question for you. So this is a question for you. It's a question for me. And there in your note sheets is a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross, the key question. And here's the question. Does your paradigm include persecution? Does your, when you think of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you know, and what does it mean to be a Christian, does your paradigm include persecution? That's just, yeah, that's part of it. We just know this goes with the territory. It's part of the package. Yeah, we expect it. Doesn't surprise us. You see, this was one of the problems with Corinth. They, they seem to have, like, they seem to fall away the longer they're following well, Jesus. The, the move, they're moving away from the message of a crucified Messiah, and they're moving into kind of the, the wisdom of Jesus, you know, like a philosophy type of thing, kind of combining it with their culture. And so they're moving away from this paradigm of that, that part of following Jesus is, is persecution. It's just part of it. It's part of the package. And it's interesting, as we go through the New Testament, what we see time and time again is that for the early church, for the apostles, that, that persecution's part of the paradigm. It's what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's not like the extra optional equipment on the Christian life. It's, it's part of the core. And I want to walk you through real quickly just three examples of this that are right windows into kind of how the early church saw this. So the first one's there in your note sheet is in the letter to the Philippians. And so this letter, you know, Paul is in prison. We've talked about that. He's writing to, to the Philippians who are suffering persecution. And he says to them, he said, it's been granted to you. In other words, God has gifted you on behalf of Christ for the sake of Jesus, his movement, not only to believe in him, but also to what? So, so you see how it's part of their paradigm? Paul says, hey, as followers of Jesus, this, it, it's been given to you. Like this is your privilege um, not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for him. Like that's, it's part of what it means to follow the cross, to follow the crucified one, to live the cruciform life. A second example 
I love this one. It's on Jesus. The, the scene is, the setting is that Jesus has just talked to this man that we call the rich young ruler. You know, the young man who comes to Jesus, what must they do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, in your case, you need to sell everything and come and follow me. But he doesn't want to do that because he's got a lot of stuff. And so he goes away sad. And so Peter speaks up and he says, well, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? And Jesus says something so provocative. He says, truly I tell you, that no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive, what's he say next? A hundred times as much when? In this present age. This is what we talk about. Jesus come to give us life and life to the full. So it makes me think of Paul. I mean, Paul was like, living a very posh, successful, rich, influential life as a leading Jew when he came to Jesus, and he lost it all. Uh, and in, in, I love what he says in Philippians 3, he says, I consider it everything a loss for the, for the privilege of knowing Jesus and, and, and being found in him. He said, I consider everything as rubbish, or some translations that say dung. To, to the value of knowing Jesus, right? So this is what Jesus is saying, that it's a hundred times. And he, and he says, in this life, he says I, uh, that you will receive a hundred times in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And then he says this, along with what? Okay, so a hundred times better in this life, along with persecutions. And then he said, and in the next life, and he says, and in the age to come, what comes next? Okay, so... This is Jesus' paradigm. This is what it means to be my follower. It, it means that you come to me, you're gonna, get, you're gonna be, receive this forgiveness of sins, this new relationship with God. You're gonna be born again. You get the Holy Spirit. He's gonna lead, guide you, transform you. It's like life to the full, right? This is a hundred times. He said, and you also get persecutions. And you get this amazing next life that's coming. That's what it means. That's the paradigm. Now, here's the question. For you and I, is that our paradigm? I think for many of us here in America, it's not. It's like we get 100 times here and now, and we get the next life. There's like we've skipped. We've left out the persecutions. <coughs> One more passage. Romans 8 Paul has said at the beginning of this chapter that how we've come to Jesus, we're now children of God. And he says, now if we're children, then we're heirs. In other words, like as God's kids, we inherit the, the future, right? This next life that's coming. <coughs> we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And the next word is big. What's the next word? If, circle it. You never want to neglect the ifs of the New Testament. They're if-then statements. If this, then that. You drop the F, you lose the if, you lose the then. All right? So he says, if indeed we share in his what? Sufferings. In order that we may share in his glory. Do you see the paradigm? The paradigm is we're God's children. This amazing new relationship. We've got this incredible future if we're willing to share his sufferings here and now. 
And then look what he says. He says, I consider that our present sufferings, and I want you to remember who's writing this. This is a man who's been whipped multiple times, a man that's been stoned twice, a man that's been shipwrecked, a man that's often homeless, a man that sometimes lives in rags, a man that's slandered. A man, he has gone through it all. And he says, but I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He says something, it's not on your note sheet, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says something. He talks, it's like, it's like Paul runs out of words. He says, we, 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 our eyes are not focused on the sufferings of this present life, but our eyes are focused on what's coming that's like exceedingly beyond anything that we can imagine. So the paradigm of Jesus, the paradigm of the apostles, the paradigm of the New Testament church is that, that persecution is part of the package. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That we don't just look back and we celebrate his sufferings for us. He's like, wasn't that great? He suffered so we don't have to. No, he, he's modeling for us the way forward. And that when we're in a dark world and we're lights in the world, that the world will hate us just like it hated him. This should not surprise us. Like, like, like Peter says in 1 Corinthians 4, don't be surprised when those among you, they hate you and mock you because you no longer act like they used to act. He says, don't be surprised. Like, this is just the way that Jesus said it would be. So this is a very important question, I think, for us at this point in our history as a culture, in our culture right now, because as you've noticed, we've talked about many times in the last many years, but especially in the last couple of years, that, that um, if you haven't noticed, the cost of following Jesus is going up, isn't it? Like, the cost of following Jesus and his righteousness is going up. And I was having a conversation with a friend this week, uh, someone who attends here at Rocky Peak, and, uh, and they, they own uh, kind, of a, kind of an old classic car, uh, kind of a high-end classic car, and it's kind of unusual color. And so his wife had taken it into this high-end dealer, and she's talking, I believe, with the service manager, something like that. And they're just having a great time chatting for several minutes. They're really connecting and chatting and talking about this car and how great and how unusual it is and blah, blah, blah. And they're really hitting off. At some point, she, she in this conversation, she says, hey, you know, we go to the church at Rocky Peak. We'd love to have you come visit us there sometime. Just kind of part of the conversation. And all of a sudden, his face that's been so friendly just goes flat. And he says, are you a Christian? And she said, yes. And he just turned and walked away and didn't talk to her the rest of the day. Right? The world's changing, isn't it? Right? Like, that the righteousness of Jesus is coming in increasing conflict with the values of our culture. And so the message that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That, that's becoming increasingly offensive, isn't it? Uh, how arrogant of you to say such a thing. Uh, I think of the kind of aggressive LGBTQ agenda in our culture. I think what we just came through Pride Month, that every year gets bigger. And say, with all love and respect, you know, that, hey, we disagree on this issue. We see this differently. We believe that, that God has created 
kind of one man for one woman, a lifetime of love and commitments, what we call marriage, and any kind of sexuality outside of that is actually destructive and damaging the human flourishing. Extremely offensive, right? We, we say that, you actually believe that the Bible says that God has created us male and female, and, and yes, that there are some that will really struggle with that, and we have great heart for that and sympathy for that and want to come alongside, but that the solution is not to try to change who you are. It's like gender is not a social construct. It's actually part of the image of God that's been created in us. Extremely offensive, isn't it? And many of you are working in offices and businesses. You're in uh, school districts and so on that we're gonna find ourselves in some tough places, some places that we're not used to being in this country. And the big question for us is, will we choose the path of Corinth, which is the path of compromise, changing the message of Jesus so that we can succeed and be accepted in our culture, or will we follow the path of Christ and the apostles and be, be lights in a dark world but be willing to pay the price for that? So the question is, you know, will we embrace the way of the cross? And so what we've been seeing throughout this series, it's so pivotal, is that the cross is not something we just look back on as, wow, the place of our salvation, but in the cross, Jesus is shining forth the path forward. That as followers of Jesus, we're called to live cruciform lives, laying down our lives for others in humility as he laid his life down for us, living out a life of love as he laid out his life for us, so demonstrating the cross, but also being a light in a dark world that'll lead to persecution for us just like it was for him. And so will we follow the way of Christ or will we follow the way of culture? Amen? Amen. You know, so today we're gonna be celebrating communion together and I wanna reframe this and if you could just hang with me for another 90 seconds. I wanna reframe this because normally we take communion, we look back and we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood for us that we might have salvation. So we look back on the cross and of course, we should always do that. Anytime we celebrate communion, we're, we're remembering, as Jesus said, what he did for us. And we're celebrating uh, later in 1 Corinthians, they'll talk about communion as the cup of thanksgiving. In Greek, the cup of eucharistia, where we get our word eucharist from. Right? And so it's always, the cup is always a cup of thanksgiving. We always remember what he did with gratitude. It's there our salvation happened. But what I want to challenge you today is when we celebrate communion, we're celebrating the way of the cross. That this is who we are. We are cross-imprinted people. This is what Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross and deny himself. Because if we walk the path of light, the darkness will hate us just like they hated Jesus. We can't be surprised at this. And it can't stop us from loving them. Because as Jesus hung there, he didn't hate his enemies. He hung there and loved his enemies. So the way of the cross is the way of love. You can hang me on a tree, but you can't stop me from loving you. You see? 
and I love you too much to give up the truth, the only truth that can set you free. And so as we go to communion today, what a beautiful time, not only to thank Jesus for the sacrifice that he made for us, but how about this? What if we ask him for the courage and the wisdom and the power to follow him so that we would be exactly who he said to be? You are the light of the world. But if a light is covered up, a lamp is covered up by a basket, what good does it do? So let your light shine so people can see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Amen? Let's stand together. So if you're new here to Rocky Peak, the way we usually take communion is around the room, the front, the sides, the back, we have communion tables. And uh, you have elements there, kind of the traditional way we do it, but also the uh, self-enclosed packets if you prefer that. And uh, so during this song, we're going to be singing a song together during communion. And whenever you feel ready to go, you can go. Um, The song is Another in the Fire. And this is a song that kind of reminds us of that scene in the Old Testament where the, the three Jewish captives, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they refused to bow down and worship the king as a god. And as a result, they threw him into the fiery furnace. But, but when the king threw him in, he said, wait a second, didn't we throw three in there? Why is it I see fourth in there? There's a fourth, they're all walking around in there. They're like we throw them in bound, but they're all walking around. And there's a fourth, and he's like a son of the god. And so the, the song says that, that what, when we find ourselves in the fire, that we're not alone. And that's the message that I want us to take today, that yes, we're called to the path of persecution, but it's the path of power, it's the path of presence, that this is where we'll fellowship, we'll find him meeting us there, amen? So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll go to uh, communion. So Father, we thank you for this time, and we, we pray, Lord, we come as your people, and we would just humbly admit that we have not grown up in a culture of persecution. We didn't really come to you and pay a huge price. Some of us may have paid some prices, broken relationships, some mocking, some sneering, but we, we haven't paid a big price. It's not like Thessalonica. It's not like Philippi. It's not like Jerusalem. And, and so, Lord, we don't, we don't know how to do this. We just humbly admit it. We, we didn't really have to count the cost in the way someone in Saudi Arabia or India today or in China has to count the cost when they give their life to you. In those countries, it's so clear that coming to Jesus, of course, is so persecution, so obvious. To us, it hasn't been. And so we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your Holy Spirit to shepherd us, change our paradigm, and then give us the courage to listen and follow. And we pray you meet us today in these communion elements as we receive this gift of new life through your body and blood, as we celebrate that, that we would also receive the gift of a new identity in you, that we are a people called to stand with you like lights in a dark place, whatever comes. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.